sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in, have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, uh, we were ahead of schedule, but it turns out our show is a bit delayed when the last couple of days Mrs. Carswell was uh, too uh, congested to record. And the scratchy throat, but lemon and honey took care of that. And this is what happens when you sleep outside in April. I wish I'd slept. Maybe I got an hour or two. Mrs. Carswell was out keeping her bees company. No, I was listening. Uh, Right, listening to the hives. It actually did help me get some clarity. Uh, Just what your mother prescribed, then. I wouldn't expect you to understand. Most most parents don't order their children to spend the night outside. I had a heavy coat and a sleeping bag. Yes, her mother just showed up one day unannounced to uh, fix everything. It wasn't a punishment, you know. It's something we would do back home if there's a lot of turmoil. Listening. It's kind of like a meditation. It's so dramatic. Why couldn't she just let you know she was coming or even just give you advice on the phone? I was pretty shocked. I was just out doing my morning hive inspection and I turned around and she was standing there. I didn't even hear her walk up. Yeah, I still don't understand how she got over the gate. She must have climbed. She, she's old. She must be... 85. And you'd think you'd hear the gate clattering. No, she'd been in the garden waiting a couple of hours when I came out. She said I walked right past her. She might have just come to the door. She refuses to come in the house. I wanted to make her dinner, but she wouldn't come inside. Well, you had plenty of time to talk at her hotel or wherever. I didn't see you at all Saturday and barely Sunday. Maybe I did see her that morning. But there was no context. You don't see things you're not expecting. She had on a gray dress and... You have that statue with the great harp over it. Maybe I can fuse the two. You know, when you see something out of the corner of your eye. It's just also weird and dramatic. I'm sure you wish you never told her about that internet guy. She was just worried. She thought I was going a little wild. It, it was helpful, I think, talking to her. But I thought we were going to talk more Monday, and then I show and... She checked out the night before, and she said she had that watch to give you. It didn't give that to me either. Probably for the best. I don't want her dead husband's watch. It's creepy. I thought you liked creepy things. Hmm. Well, I think it's time to start the show. Uh, Episode 86, Hellfire Clubs, Part... Two. 
I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including a short bonus episode. And we have a special offer running till the end of April, a chance for new subscribers to win the 15-disc set, All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. I'll have more on that at the end of our show. Go down these steps. Pass these stone images, but don't make a sound. Follow these two small boys, and they will lead you to the secret meeting place of the Hellfire Club. A gathering of all who are evil and low and hellish. We dedicate our sacrifice. The plotline of this 1961 period drama, The Hellfire Club, uh, something about uh, stolen inheritance and two embattled cousins, is dull and completely fictional, but its depiction of devilish gatherings in caves is at least inspired by stories of the Hellfire Caves on the Buckinghamshire estate of Sir Francis Dashwood. While unconnected in any real way to the earlier groups discussed in our last show, Dashwood's Club is the most well-known example of these 18th century groups described as Hellfire Clubs. Probably it was the caves themselves that really cemented the group in the popular imagination. The caves are also the reason I'm doing these episodes once I realized I couldn't shoehorn the topic into our earlier uh, Grottoes episode. While we're on the subject... Dashwood's caves were actually man-made, as is typical of grottos, and the idea of this sort of environment as a place of unconstrained frolics harkens back to the pleasure grottos of ancient Rome, as we discussed, a thread that could also be traced all the way up to the Playboy Mansion's famous grotto created for Hugh Hefner in the 1970s kinds of shelves and waterfalls and things to enjoy. Do you enjoy making love in this atmosphere? Yes. That you created for yourself in your own head to be able to make love in the water? No, the 70s. We'll uh, get to the cave specifically toward the end of the show, but first, a bit about the founder of this group. Francis Dashwood was born into privilege, the son of a baronet. And at the age of 15, with his father's death, he inherited the title and the family estate in Wickham in Buckinghamshire County, about an hour northeast of London. Later, he served as an MP and in various appointments, including Chancellor of the Exchequer and Postmaster General. His uh, reputation in such roles was uh, generally one of utter incompetence, so he seems to have been peculiarly gifted as a socialite. Especially important to Dashwood's social identity were his travels on the continent, notably his three-year stay in Italy. 
one that imbued in him a lifelong obsession with classical culture. While abroad, he also indulged certain more impish tendencies. The historian and novelist, early Gothic novelist, Horace Walpole, uh, described Dashwood as someone known by his singularities and his humor. And he relates in his Memoirs of the Reign of King George III how Dashwood extended his travels on the continent into Russia and dressed as Charles XII, traveling to Russia in hopes of captivating the Tsarina. But neither the character nor dress of Charles were well imagined to catch a woman's heart. Another uh, fairly improbable stunt attributed to him in Rome is related by Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild in a talk from 1884 on John Wilkes, one of Dashwood's cronies. It was the custom on certain occasions for devotees who wished to perform penance to scourge themselves with a light whip in the dimly lit chapel of the pontifical palace. Sir Francis, having provided himself with a strong hunting whip, placed himself amongst the congregation and, when the candles had been extinguished, took advantage of the darkness to hit the penitents right, left, and as hard as he could. In the confusion which ensued, he contrived to make his escape, but, being subsequently discovered, had to fly the country for his life. If not actually true, the anecdote at least conveys a truth, that of Dashwood's scandalous public image. In 1732, roughly a decade before he created what came to be called the Hellfire Club, Dashwood founded another dining club for those who had traveled on the continent and wished to further explore an interest in that continental and particularly classical culture and art. It was called the Society of the Dilettanti, though the word at the time didn't have the uh, pejorative uh, connotation of dabbler, which it has now, uh, coming from the Italian verb meaning to delight in, uh, just meant something like enthusiast. Dashwood initially sent invitations to 40 charter members, exclusively men of his social circle, naturally, some of whom may have been involved in Wharton's earlier Hellfire Club, or so it's speculated at least. While meetings certainly involved dining and particularly drinking, Cultural discussions and presentations were of a level that resulted in Dashwood being invited to join the Royal Society and the Society of Antiquaries as a fellow. Uh, though it's long since disassociated from Dashwood and his memory, the Society even today has a residual presence, mainly as a funding source for classical studies and archaeology. But beneath all the high-minded pretense, royal more scandalous impulses, an obsession with sex and boozing dressed up in constant allusions to Venus and Bacchus, respectively. Uh, erotic art from Pompeii was always a popular topic of discussion, as many members were collectors of this, and the mahogany chest that contained society documents, for instance, was known as the tomb of Bacchus. And the uh, ballot box for voting on potential members was ornamented with a female figure astride a wine cast with a suggestively placed hole through which balls used for voting were pushed. Uh, 
certain aspects of the society's ritual, dress, and paraphernalia seemed to already partake of a devilish hellfire nature. The elected leader, who was designated as the... Archmaster! ...presided over the society from a throne with legs carved to resemble a satyr. He wore a red tasseled toga and was attended by an officer known as... The Imp! ...who carried a candle and was outfitted in a red cloak complete with tail. Though it only lasted from 1744 to 1746, Dashwood also created a social group called the Divan Club, only open to those who had traveled in or shared an interest in lands ruled by the Ottomans. There's a, a delightful portrait of Dashwood that is probably from this period, in which he sports a bejeweled turban and hoists a glass of wine, grinning with insane satisfaction. In 1752, Dashwood turned his attention to his most famous creation. Actually, he never called it the Hellfire Club. That was the name bestowed upon it later by outsiders. However, like the Hellfire Clubs that preceded it, it was dedicated to that same spirit of roguish blasphemy. Of the various official names by which it was designated at different periods, all of these emphasized this uh, blasphemous aspect, uh, conflating the Catholic saint of Assisi with the reprobate of uh, Wickham. One of the names was... The Brotherhood of St. Francis of Wickham. Or... The Order of the Knights of St. Francis. And also... The Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham. The initial meeting took place at Dashwood's estate on May Eve on Valpurgisnacht, 1752, but he was rather displeased with the results and moved gatherings to London's George and Vulture Inn, a place later beloved by Dickens, but is now a bland steakhouse with absolutely no interest in its heritage, sad to say. Dashwood's club, however, is most strongly associated with those caves I mentioned, and also a ruined abbey the group moved into a few years later. Upon making that transition, members began referring to themselves as monks, specifically the monks of Medinum, the location of the abbey. Dashwood seemed particularly delighted with this bit of irreverence. Twice he had sat for a portrait in the guise of a monk. The most famous of these was executed by William Hogarth, modeled on a Renaissance painting of St. Francis during the cross. Though in uh, this version, the subject in monk's robes leers at a naked reclining woman. Uh, another detail is a notorious 17th century erotic novel, The School of Women, taking the place of a Bible. A few historical mentions of the monks of Medinum uh, refer to members actually wearing monkish habits, as you might imagine. But elsewhere, other special outfits are described, uh, white coats, trousers, and hats for regular members, and a red ensemble for the annually elected abbot. Uh, the abbot was the one charged with organizing festivities, or at least those of the uh, week-long annual gathering held sometime in the summer. In 1751, Dashwood began leasing the place, uh, the old uh, Cistercian Abbey of St. Mary, which was located on the Thames about 10 miles south of his estate. The 
medieval stone structure was largely in ruins, but a 16th century house on the grounds was still inhabitable and was what was used for meetings. As the owner, uh, Francis Duffield, was himself a club member, Dashfield was able to make a number of modifications, including the addition of an arched cloister, and a tower was added, but constructed as a romantic partial ruin. A 1797 guidebook to the region by Thomas Langley remarks of the renovated property. The Abbey House, with its ivy-mantled roof and walls, forms a very picturesque object. Noting of the interiors that they are... Fitted up with the same good taste, and the glare of light is judiciously excluded by the pleasing gloom of stained glass. Ah, pleasing gloom, can only imagine. Murals, supposedly executed by Hogarth, once graced the walls also, but they are long gone, and the property is under private ownership, so you can't visit. While improvements to this property stayed largely true to their Gothic or Elizabethan origins, the architect Dashwood recruited to supervise the project, Nicholas Revett was a pivotal figure in the revival of classical Greek architecture in England, a movement Dashwood embraced with uniquely eccentric abandon. In 1751, Dashwood also uh, financed the restoration of the local church of St. Lawrence, which may sound like an odd undertaking for a hellfire type, that is, until you realize that his work with Revit took a specifically paganizing turn. The uh, nave of the church was remodeled based on illustrations of Roman ruins in Palmyra, a structure then known as the Temple of the Sun. Stranger still was the addition of a large golden ball topping the steeple, uh, something uh, modeled upon uh, a feature of the customs house in Venice. This globe was large enough to seat perhaps a dozen people within, a feature enjoyed by members of Dashwood's group who naturally were inclined to use it as their private tavern. In 1771, Dashwood had Revit also reworked the family home. A portico entrance was added, one modeled on the Temple of Bacchus at Teos. The Great Hall underwent a similar conversion, and the house was soon crowded with Greek and Roman statuary, an influence that spilled out onto the grounds. A lake in the shape of a swan representing Leda was added. Artificial hills representing the breasts and curves of Venus were created and completed with a suggestively placed cave. The landscaping was further enhanced with various pagan shrines and statues, including an unmentionably detailed statue of Priapus. A 1771 edition of The Gentleman's and London magazine describes the flamboyantly pagan dedication ceremony of a garden pavilion representing another temple of Bacchus, i.e. another place to drink. A procession formed of bacchanals, priests, priestesses, pan, fogs, satyrs, etc., all in proper habits and skins, wreathed with vine leaves, ivy, oak, etc., in the most picturesque manner imaginable. 
the procession arriving at the portico, the high priest addressed the statue in an invocation which was succeeded by several hymns and other pieces of music, both vocal and instrumental, suitable to the occasion and having finished the sacrifice, proceeded through the groves to a tent pitched at the head of the lake where peans and libations were repeated. But back to the club itself. Uh, in trying to imagine these gatherings, it seems safe to say that much of the evening would have been passed in uh, drinking, and gossip, uh, political debate, and clever toasts, and uh, bawdy songs or highly irreverent jokes. But to what extent did their frequently alluded to devotions to Venus designate actual, literal, sexual frolics? A book written in 1779, probably a while after the club was active, does provide some hints. It's a survey of London's brothels called Nocturnal Revels, and happens to be attributed to a monk of the Order of St. Francis. Not necessarily being an actual member of Dashwood's club, but someone clearly invoking the well-known spirit of the group. It discusses the club as if it were still ongoing, which is strange, but may be accounted for by the fact that the book is less a user's guide to brothels and more just a gossipy, salacious read. There are plenty of names and places representing famous figures, uh, somewhat encoded or obscured, but still easily guessed. Its description of one of the monks' gatherings at first sounds remarkably genteel, even suggesting a strict code of conversation. Noting that jests must not border too much upon a loose double entendre to be received with applause. Which may be written facetiously, I'm not sure, and more generally. They, however, always meet in one general setting at meals, when, for the improvement of both pleasantry and gaiety, every member is allowed to introduce a lady of cheerful, lively disposition to improve the general hilarity. There is no constraint with regard to the circulation of the glass. After some particular toasts have been given, the ladies, in the intervals of their repasts, may make select parties among themselves, or entertain one another, or alone with reading, music, embroidery, etc. Don't let the embroidery fool you. It seems these ladies have been paid to be there, and the relationship between prostitute and customer is uh, further clarified, noting that... The former considering themselves as the lawful wives of the brethren during their stay within the monastic walls, every monk being religiously scrupulous not to infringe upon the nuptial alliance of any other brother. A number of later accounts suggest the same, uh, perhaps disallowing for massive orgies, but maintaining that the monks would pair off with prostitutes, or so-called nuns, all privately in their designated cells to keep it proper. While it's possible these are all just rumors, the libertine law of Dashwood's monastic order was literally set in stone, carved over the entrance. Do what you will. Well, not in English, actually, but French, as it was borrowed from the uh, 16th century French satirist Francois Rabelais, himself a former monk, 
who'd uh, come to espouse humanist values while satirizing the church and society at large. In his uh, series of connected novels, Gargantua and Pantagruel. In Gargantua, he imagines an abbey with this very phrase likewise inscribed over the entrance. It's called the Abbey of Thelema from the Greek word meaning to win. All of which, as many of you will recognize, was borrowed by Aleister Crowley to describe his own religious system of Thelema. Unsurprisingly, Dashwood is taken by some followers of Crowley as a sort of John the Baptist that is a herald to the great beast Crowley. While Dashwood and Crowley both seem to relish their devilish reputation, Dashwood's attitude seems strictly one of playful parody. Nevertheless, there was gossip to the contrary. Horace Walpole, in the uh, previously cited memoir, speaks of a visit to the Abbey where he was barred from visiting a chapel, the decorations of which may well be supposed to have contained the quintessence of their mysteries, since it was impenetrable to any but the initiated. At least that's what he was told. They may have been yanking his chain. There are also a few references to a certain secret rite engaged in by a select few after the annual election of a new abbot. But uh, this, too, could also represent some sort of a purely theatrical uh, hazing of the new abbot or simply some stunt so lewd and blasphemous it was prudent to keep it under wraps. Rather than any sort of covert occultist, Dashwood seems much more obviously an aggressively hedonistic and uh, prankish man of the Enlightenment, sharing that Enlightenment bias against magic and religion of any sort, and Catholicism in particular. Though he does seem to have made some allowances for Protestant belief, or at least did so as a vehicle for criticizing Rome, as in uh, 1773, he came out with his own edition of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, one specifically edited to purge it of any suspect Catholic elements. The expurgated prayer book is of particular interest as it represents a collaboration between Francis Dashwood and Benjamin Franklin. While the two were friends, and Franklin had a not-so-secret reputation as a dirty old goat, there's no evidence that he was actually one of the monks of Menonim. There were, however, other prominent members whom we uh, know of, thanks to something called the Cellar Book, that is a sort of bar tab for each meeting, listing who called for what bottles to be brought up from Dashwood's uh, wine cellar. And we know that members were divided into two tiers, general members and the superiors, a group restricted to 12 members, plus Dashwood, the number 13 being either an irreverent reference to Jesus and his 12 disciples or the number in a witch's coven. As I mentioned earlier, there were quite a few members of parliament among the members, including Dashwood's cousin and long-term monk, Thomas Stapleton. Another original member, and perhaps Dashwood's closest friend, was the poet Paul Whitehead, who served as the club secretary and also composed most of the uh, comically obscene hymns sung at gatherings. 
Whitehead seems to have been involved in an ongoing feud with another poet, Charles Churchill, who targeted him in his uh, satirical works, along with uh, taking aim at uh, William Hogarth, uh, who, like Franklin, seems to have been more of a friend of Dashwood's, not a member, probably. Also in the roster was uh, Frederick, Prince of Wales, the eldest son of George II. Having estranged himself from the royal family, the prince now served as a figurehead for the opposition to George III, a cause most members held in sympathy. Another of the monks, uh, who was also an MP and the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas Potter, whose uh, libertine behavior outraged his family and was said to have uh, also been responsible for the corruption of a younger member, a member particularly important to the club's history, John Wilkes. Wilkes was an unusual character. John Bowles, in his 1892 book, The Dawn of Radicalism, writes that Wilkes was ugly and squinted detestably, but so agreeable and insinuating was his address that more than one fair lady, as she listened, found herself forgetting his sinister squint and ill-favored countenance. Bowles adds that Wilkes was known for his remarkable wit and astounding impudence. Which also impressed males. As a radical essayist and politician, had sworn enemy of George III, he had not only gained a following in Britain, but also with the king's opponents in the American colonies. In fact, he was regarded as such a hero of the revolution that the unfortunate parents of Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, sought to uh, honor him in the naming of their son. Wilkes published commentary on a speech by the king resulted in charges of libel and him fleeing to Paris as an outlaw. Upon his return, he was briefly imprisoned amidst sympathetic riots, all of which endangered Dashwood's club through Wilkes' association. An important rival of Wilkes within the club, a long-term member who even was part of Dashwood's earlier Devan club, was the statesman John Montague. He held a number of offices over time, Postmaster General, First Lord of the Admiralty, and Secretary of State for the Northern Department, but is best known as the Fourth Earl of Sandwich. Uh, yes, the one after which the handy pile of uh, bread and meat was named, and Sandwich, since we're discussing this, is a town in Kent. The uh, origin story you may have heard, one already in circulation during Montague's lifetime, asserts that he was uh, such a compulsive gambler, a, a suitable Hellfire Club member quality, that he would refuse to leave the gaming table for meals, a situation resolved by the kitchen sending out a new type of meal. And also as Lord of the Admiralty, he was a good person for explorer James Cook to name his discovery of the Sandwich Islands after. And the only other fact you need to know about the Earl of Sandwich for our Hellfire story is that he kept as a mistress a high-profile courtesan, Fanny Murray. And uh, here we come to the events that snowballed to destroy the club. At uh, some point in the late 1750s, John Wilkes, along with his uh, fellow monk, Thomas Potter, created a satiric poem about Montague's Fanny Murray entitled, An Essay on Woman, an aggressively uh, 
pornographic and blasphemous parody of Alexander Pope's essay on man. After writing it, Wilkes sent it off to the printer to have 12 copies made, presumably to be shared with his fellow monks. But before these could be delivered, the project came to the attention of an outraged local vicar who provided a copy to the Earl of Sandwich. Naturally, Montague took offense at the rude treatment of his mistress, but his response went even deeper. Not only did Montague and Wilkes oppose each other politically, but there was a further enmity between the two thanks to a conflict within the club, which I'll detail in a moment. So, to destroy Wilkes, Montague chose to read aloud before Parliament passages of an essay on woman, which, though it might have been quite an entertaining change of pace for that mob, resulted in charges against Wilkes, specifically for writing a most scandalous, obscene, and impious libel, a great profanation of many parts of the Holy Scripture, and a most wicked and blasphemous attempt to ridicule and vilify the person of our blessed Savior. While harmful to Wilkes, this stunt, which Dashwood sadly supported, backfired in a big way, though it was a convenient last straw providing an excuse to expel Wilkes from the club. It only provoked further damage as Wilkes, in personal letters and presumably personal conversation, began characterizing the order as obscene and encouraged fellow member Charles Churchill, himself already at odds with the club steward, Paul Whitehead, to attack the monks in a satirical print entitled The Secrets of the Convent. It depicts Dashwood and Whitehead in uh, monks' habits with Dashwood toasting a naked statue of Venus. Accompanying text references uh, Whitehead sucking up to the uh, new Prime Minister Butte in hopes of an appointment, and it ends with a uh, dirty, uh, well, by inference, rhyme referencing Venus. Success attend you, I'll be blunt. My dearest brother, here is a... Well, as I said, an inferred dirty list. In any case, all this bad publicity and infighting resulted in Dashwood halting meetings at the Abbey and going as far as to strip the meeting room of all paraphernalia of the organization in March of 1766. I alluded a moment ago to uh, conflicts between Wilkes and the Earl of Sandwich within the context of the club. This was a particular event transpiring at Medinham Abbey, something involving a baboon. The original version of this story comes from a peculiar book called Crystal or the Adventures of a Guinea. It's a sort of fantasy novel published in several volumes written for the purpose of sharing real-world gossip. Crystal is the name of a coin dug from a Peruvian mine and magically invested with consciousness. Uh, traded through various transactions, the coin makes its way to England, where it witnesses all manner of scandalous activities of the era, some of which involve the monks of Medinum. And so, according to this oft-repeated story, the following prank is the prime cause of the Earl's contempt for Wilkes. Wilkes had contrived the night before to bring into his cell a great baboon 
which she had provided for the occasion. When the brotherhood retired to their cells after dinner, to prepare for the ceremony, he availed himself of the office of the keeper of the chapel and conveyed there this creature, dressed up in fantastic garb in which the childish imagination would clothe devils. There he shut him up in a large chest used to hold the ornaments and utensils of the table when the society was away. To the spring of the lock of the chest he fastened a cord which he drew under the carpet that was on the floor to his own seat, and there brought the end of it through a hole made for the purpose in such a manner that he could readily find it. Later, when the monks are gathered together, at the chosen moment, Wilkes pulled the cord and out popped the wretched animal which leapt onto the shoulders of Lord Sandwich who, feeling the shock and seeing the animal grinning horribly at him, concluded that the devil had obeyed his summons in good earnest and had come to carry him bodily away. The harder he tried to shake off the poor creature, the tighter it clung, while Sandwich cried out, Spare me, gracious devil! Spare a wretch who never was sincerely your servant! I sinned only from the vanity of being in the fashion. Thou knowest I never have been half so wicked as I pretend, never have been able to commit the thousandth part of the vices of which I have boasted. Leave me, therefore, and go to those who are more truly devoted to your service. I am but half a sinner. And so it was this, the so-called... Affair of the Baboon. Which was the true reason Lord Sandwich chose to disgrace Wilkes in Parliament with his reading, which prompted Wilkes' countermeasures and the eventual collapse of the whole society. While all these scandals and infighting spelled an end to the meetings in the Abbey, many believe that after this the group went underground. Uh, literally, that is, to gather in those caves mentioned earlier. The Hellfire Caves, as they're now called, are a series of interconnecting maze-like tunnels running about a quarter of a mile in length. Dashwood had them excavated between 1748 and 1752 to extract chalk for road construction and to provide work for local farmers impoverished by recent droughts. Or that's part of the story, it's likely the chalk was simply a nice byproduct to Dashwood's desire to create the cave as a decorative showpiece, a project similar to the other constructions on his parklands, and to the grottos and picturesque follies and the like created on the estates of his peers. Uh, Horace Walpole, for instance, had an artificial cave in his property, as did Pope. Why shouldn't Dashwood? The Hellfire Caves, ironically enough, tunneled directly beneath the Church of St. Lawrence, a fact Dashwood would have surely enjoyed sharing with his visitors. In a 1796 entry of a Mrs. Philip Poes, a wife of an Oxfordshire politician, she describes her visit to the site. Near the middle of the excavation, there is a small pool which is now crossed by the stepping stones, but formerly it is said it would only be passed in a boat. The excavation terminates in a large, lofty, circular cavern, 
with a vaulted roof in which is a hook for suspending a lamp or chandelier. Here, according to local tradition, the Hellfire Club occasionally held its meetings. The lamp mentioned was probably one elsewhere referred to by Dashwood as his... Rosicrucian lamp. One consisting of a large crystal globe encircled by a golden serpent, the light of which he considered to have a a hypnotic or enchanting quality. The underground pool mentioned was supposedly known by the Medinam monks as the River Styx, and is these days once again full of water. The large circular chamber by tradition is known as the Banqueting Hall, and uh, other small rooms and cubby holes as monk cells. A towering gothic facade with vaulted windows decorating the cave's entrance adds to the foreboding atmosphere, and on the interior walls one can find two faces carved into the stone, uh, possibly skulls or demons, it's hard to tell thanks to their crude execution. Uh, Given Dashwood's discerning tastes and recruitment of expert artisans, these must be later additions, probably the humble contributions of later visitors seeking to contribute to the cave's spooky atmosphere and reputation. By the 19th century, legends of the Medinam monks were becoming increasingly dramatic. London's Weekly Dispatch in July 1836 described how Dashwood had officiated as a priest, administered the sacrament in burlesque, drank profane as well as obscene toasts out of the communion cup, and all their revelries were so disgusting and horrible that it's almost impossible to imagine that the men were not insane. By 1894, Charles Pearson, in his book National Life and Character, claimed The worst acts imputed to the monks of Medinam are, I believe, the invocation of the devil by Lord Sandwich and the giving of the sacrament to a dog by the same individual. That same year, London Magazine related a story involving a homicidal ghost supposed to be the wraith of the last of the mad monks of Medinam. These are just the references I find in print. Uh, Local oral traditions surely went even further in embroidering the tales. By 1951, a descendant of Francis Dashwood, Sir Francis John Vernon Harrowood Dashwood, who had inherited the family's West Wickham properties, struck upon the idea of transforming the caves into a major tourist attraction. Having spent some time abroad studying at Harvard, Young Francis, perhaps invigorated by American entrepreneurialism, returned home with the plans to fully exploit the caves and their sensational associations. I should probably note here that there are no contemporary references to the monks making use of the caves, leaving some historians to conclude the club actually never met there. But in light of reports of the monks partying in the Golden Ball atop the St. Lawrence steeple, seems unlikely to me that Dashwood would have missed an opportunity to entertain his cronies in the caves, though perhaps not as an official club function, we can't really know. In any case, it was his descendant who 
fixed the name Hellfire Caves to the site in his promotional campaigns. Increasingly, Dashwood's club was referenced to as a, or the uh, Hellfire Club, as the names like the Knights of St. Francis were long forgotten, and the Monks of Medinum was inappropriate outside the Abbey context, perhaps. The uh, hullabaloo around the cave's reopening came with some interesting reactions, as noted in a July 1952 issue of the London newspaper, The People, an article entitled, Devil Worship Caves in a Quiet Village Start Church Row, reports that, In the countryside around West Wickham, they are saying, that the spirit of evil is abroad again, and that it emanates from the caves that once witnessed obscene rituals. And the local bishop is quoted on the subject. There is an atmosphere of evil in the caves, he says, and many of my congregation declare that it has spread even to the church itself. They say that it pervades a corner of the church tower. My wife describes it as the same sort of feeling she had during alerts in the London Blitz. A queer sinking sensation in the stomach. A feeling of terror and dismay. Despite such qualms, the caves were soon drawing a sizable crowd and part of the money was donated to maintenance of St. Lawrence Church. Uh, probably helping to quiet the complaints. Though the 1954 season might have been a little wild as a caged baboon was added as a sideshow and then quickly removed. Uh, reference, of course, to the word sandwich incident. Today, if you visit, there are no caged baboons, but the vintage mannequins uh, installed in the 50s are still in place, along with the spooky show lighting. And, a uh, word to the wise, the site is also available for private rentals. Uh, kids' parties and weddings are options noted on the website. I'd like to end our show with a supernatural legend associated with Dashwood's Club and one of its members, uh, Paul Whitehead, the secretary. The story begins with a 64-year-old Whitehead, uh, seriously ill, and knowing he is near his end. It was the week between Christmas and New Year's, uh, 1774, during which Whitehead, set by the fire in his London lodgings, feverishly burning writings and records he feared might taint his legacy. Among the papers were said to be the collective archives of the monks of Medinum. And none too soon, as on December 30th, Whitehead succumbed to his illness and was buried at St. Mary's Church in Teddington. In the 1810 volume, The Works of the British Poets, author Alexander Chalmers describes Whitehead's final, unintentional act of self-sabotage. But whatever care Whitehead took to retrieve his character and throw oblivion over the most blamable part of his life, he unintentionally revived the whole by a clause in his will in which, out of gratitude, he bequeathed his heart to Lord Dashwood and desired it might be deposited, if his lordship pleased, in some corner of his mausoleum. And so, at some point before the body was planted in the Teddington churchyard, according to Whitehead's wishes, his heart was carved out 
and transported to his old friend, who responded quite theatrically, staging a funeral for the heart far grander than that provided for Whitehead's body. Chalmers writes, The valuable relic was deposited with the ceremony of a military procession. Vocal performers outfitted as a choir and every other testimony of veneration. The whole was followed by the performance of an oratorio in West Wickham Church. Chalmers goes on to provide a bit of the oratorio's fulsome lyric and concludes that the whole production was nothing more than a specimen of solemn mockery. For years after this, Whitehead's heart rested in a niche amidst the remains of the Dashwood family. Heart burials in England at this time were such a novelty that curious visitors frequently asked to see and even touch the withered little ball, and these wishes were indulged for years. Uh, That is, until, sadly, in 1893, the heart was stolen. A visiting Australian soldier was considered the likely culprit, but the organ was never returned. I also might interject here that the Dashwood Mausoleum represents another of his neoclassical constructions, uh, one authentic enough to be used in A Clockwork Orange as a location for a fantasy sequence in which Alex imagines himself uh, as a centurion whipping Christ, and uh, it was visually striking enough to stand in, rather appropriately, for an occultist temple in the 1976 adaptation of the Dennis Wheatley novel and Christopher Lee vehicle, To the Devil, Devil, a Daughter. daughter. In 1781, while the heart lay safe and sound in the mausoleum and Whitehead's spirit should have been content, his ghost suddenly began making appearances in and around the mausoleum, the park, and the mansion. In November of that year, Lady Austin, Dashwood's sister, wrote to a friend, There are few, if any, of his lordship's numerous household who have not seen him sometimes in the park, sometimes in the garden, as well as in the house by day and night. Dashwood himself was said to have seen the ghost silently gesturing and beckoning to him. Being in a frail, largely bedridden state at this point, he was particularly shaken. Whether spoken or not, these visitations surely brought with them a sense of impending doom, an omen fulfilled on the 11th of December, 1781, when Francis Dashwood went to his final reward. Let's drink while we have breath For there's no drinking after death And they that will this help deny Down among the dead men Down among the dead men Down, 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 down Down among the dead men Let them I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. 
As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a special offer running from now until April 30th, a chance to win the 15-disc set All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. It's a splendid collection released in conjunction with the folk horror documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which is uh, one of the included discs. Not only does it include over 31 hours of folk horror films on Blu-ray, but also three CDs, including a reading of a classic Arthur Machen story and a 156-page booklet on the folk horror genre. I'll uh, post a link with the film list and further details uh, in the show notes on the website. The value of the collection is listed at $279, and a randomly chosen subscriber at the $4 a month level or higher will be announced on May 1st. To enter, you have to subscribe on the uh, one-time, once-yearly plan, which actually saves you 15% on what you would otherwise pay monthly. And uh, as for those regular Patreon rewards, those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading of something from our library, given the bone and sickle soundscape treatment, of course. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, uh, my Krampus book, the bone and sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. I'd like to thank our recent sign-ups now enjoying these rewards. These kind souls include Jeff D., Jamie Domini, Tyler Lominac, Lavoris, Malocchio, Joshua Shockley, who was kind enough to share with me about his interests in the strange and esoteric. And we had a few people upping their pledges this time around, uh, thanks to Brandon Allendorf, Molly Van Overhill, Schaefer Shockley, and Sean Burdick, who was also kind enough to share some uh, mutually interesting topics with me. Uh, Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>